Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, we long for that to be the testimony of our life. That no matter what happens, we would be hard chasing after you in failures and victories in whatever comes our way in crisis and in good times, God, that we would chase hard after you. It is our desire that you would speak to us today. We realize that we need you and that you have spoken to us through your word. And so today, Lord, we bow to its authority in our life. And we lay our lives before you to be examined. And God, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds and allow us to know your truth and to purposely put it into action in our lives. We pray these things knowing that that is what glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week has been uh, a technological nightmare for me. Um, and we'll see if it continues. Okay. Looks like it's going to. There we go. Okay. Um, what we want to do today is we're going to finish, um, we're going to keep in the, the series that we've been in, looking at David's life, looking at how his life should be an example to ours as we try uh, very hard to, to become wholehearted seekers of God. Um, I don't know about you, but last week I got dinged a little bit by David's life when all of a sudden uh, Larry helped us see that integrity in our lives is vitally important. And that my personal integrity protects the unity of the body. I don't know if you took that home with you and you thought about that past, you know, lunchtime on Sunday, but that continued to just be ringing in my ears as I made the small little choices of every day. What I choose to do at this moment, as I protect my integrity, I'm protecting not only my integrity, but the integrity of God's people and, and God's witness in the world. And so for me, that was a huge deal. And, and I took my dings throughout the week as God brought up little areas that might not quite be uh, operating the way they should. So this week, we're going to continue in the story. And last week, we saw that Ishbosheth died or he was killed. And that was the, the last son of Saul. And so the way is cleared for David to take reign of what God had promised through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. When Samuel anointed David as the boy king, that one day he would rule the nation. And we're going to see that come to fruition in consummation today. And it says this in, first, in 2 Samuel 5. Verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood, and in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. 
When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them or covenant um, at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. And in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. And we see this consummation happen, and we see the elders coming before um, David. David's already ruling over Judah. These are the elders of the tribes of Israel, and they come to David, and they say, Hey, we recognize the bloodline. We recognize that you have already exercised leadership in your military campaigns and the leadership of Israel before already. And, but the big thing is we recognize that you are God's anointed one. And you will shepherd over the nation of Israel. And so they do that and David covenants with them to be their king. And so we have the unifying of a nation. And following... It says this, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone conquers, who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. This is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David and built up the area around it from the supporting terraces and inward. David, basically his first campaign as a unified leader of Israel is to take Jerusalem. Jerusalem is right in the middle of the northern and the southern kingdoms and it is a centrally located place to create a capital that was not inhabited by either side at this point. The Civil wars happened, we talked about that, north and south against each other, kind of rings a bell. Okay, so they're going to pick a capital that is kind of territory that nobody's claimed up to this point. So it's perfect. So David goes in and God blesses him and he conquers Jerusalem. And he sets up this political capital to rule. So David, we see David conquering um, over the Jebusites who were obviously very proud. And we continue to see this in David's life. And one thing I want to point out, as we have traced from David's anointing as a boy to his reign now, we see one thing. We see a humble man who is not willing to do anything to bring about this anointing that God has promised. He's not going to take his hand and make it happen. He could have done it and killed Saul early on. There's a lot of things along the way that we've seen. He said, no, I will not take my hand against God's anointed. And he's waited on God's timing. And now God is bringing all these things to fruition in his life in a mighty way. So as you read this, remember, David has been awfully humble to this point. A man with great political power, a leader of men, being humble. It's an amazing thing. Don't let it pass you by. So, back to our story. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. 
Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and has exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and had more sons and daughters born to him. And these are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Abhar, Elisha, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, Eldad. You know, you can do this well in your office. You get up here and it just doesn't roll off the tongue. Anyway, he had a lot of kids while he was in Jerusalem. And God was continuing to bless him. And the big thing about it is this. That was the sign of God blessing David's line and his rule. And that someone would sit on that throne continually. And you don't hear anything about Saul's line through that point. So we have that differentiation. David became stronger at this point in time because of one reason. Not because he was a great military leader. Not because that he had established Jerusalem as the stronghold of the nation. Not because of his political power now that he had united the nation around him. None of those things were the reason why the scriptures say he became stronger and stronger and stronger. The one reason is because God was with him. And that is the only reason the scriptures give us, that he became stronger and stronger. And the amazing thing is that people all around him saw this. The king of Tyre saw this and blessed him. If you were a neighboring king and you saw David getting stronger and stronger, wouldn't you want to make an alliance with him? I would. Sounds like a smart political move to me. Build him a temple. Build him a palace. Let him help him out. Maybe that will come in handy later. Okay, so they recognize that. But the big thing here, once again, we see David's humility because David realizes who has established, who has exalted him to this position. David was experiencing these things by the hand of God, and he recognized it. He knew it, it says. In some translation, he realized where all these blessings were coming from. This humble realization is significant for us today because we have to understand that there is an irreplaceable quality in the person who wholeheartedly seeks God, and it is humility. If you and I really want to know what it means to be a mature and ministering worshiper of God, it means to be a humble minister and worshiper of God. And we see that in David's life. And it's just going to keep being brought out. And we see God blessing him for that. And this long list of children is a big sign of that. And parents, I'll let you deal with the uh, concubines and multiple wives later tonight after dinner. Back to our story. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines even know. They notice You know, we should have the bad guy music in the background because here they come again, the enemies of Israel, right? And so here they come back on the scene, and now the Philistines have come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, which is three to four miles southwest of Jerusalem. So right on his doorstep, they're all congregating there. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? 
The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So this place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Now, so you see God's hand. But one thing I want you to pay attention to is David's humble pursuit of God in this. The first thing David does, he's a new unified king, okay? The first crisis that comes up, what is the first thing he does? He inquires of the Lord. He doesn't run out. They're three or four miles away from Jerusalem. He doesn't run out there and just go after them. He stops and he inquires of God. And God speaks to him, and he receives instruction from God. And then David humbly follows God's instruction. And then David experiences God's victory. Because David asked the question, will you give them to me? Will your hand deliver them to me? So... On with the thing. Once more, the Philistines, they come up again. And they spread out in the valley. They don't learn quick. So David inquired of the Lord. And and the Lord answered him, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. And soon as they hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Do you see the pattern? What does David do again? Inquires of the Lord, receives even more detailed instruction this time. Don't go straight out after him. Go around, come behind, and I will deliver them to you. I will go before you, God says. And David humbly submits to God's will takes what God has revealed to him, puts it in place in his life, and the victory is his. Don't miss that. David is humbly walking and seeking, walking with God and seeking him. And we need to think about that because it's really the fruition of Isaiah 66, 2 that says this, Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When God is speaking to the rebellious and prideful Israelites, he says this one thing. This is the one I will look to. This is the one I will esteem. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, once again, David's humility is showing us how he's experiencing through that the fruit of God's attentiveness. In chapter 5, we see humility and obedience being held out to us in the life of David as divinely attractive. God truly does give grace to the humble. Humility really is the irreplaceable quality of one of those who seek God. And David's life is just bringing that out. If we truly, as a corporate body, as a church, are serious about striving together to become mature and ministering worshipers of God, if we're really serious about that, 
if we really want to see that come to fruition, then humility must characterize each of us independently and corporately. If we want God to esteem us, to look upon us, then we must live with this characteristic at the forefront of our lives. Just as integrity last week protected the unity of the body, this week we see humility protecting the worship of God. And we're going to see how that shakes out as we go further. David, again, brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all, and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up for there, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and our own ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, 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 no. That guy, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And that guy was walking in front of it, and David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord in songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and cisterns and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place was called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. What in the world just happened? We see... This amazing display of a man walking with God in humble submission. And we see all of a sudden this plan go awry. And in the midst of worship of all places, God strikes a man dead. It is frightfully and should be frightfully alarming. I mean, if that happened here, would that not shake you up a little bit? So what's really going on? And why this break in this enthusiastic worship service? One word, pride. As much as God loves humility, he hates pride. Proverbs 16.5 says this, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Why does God hate pride so much? I think it's explained in this definition by C.J. Mahaney. Pride is when sinful humans aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him. 
Pride is the contending for supremacy with God. Contending with God. You cannot worship that which you are contending with. There's prideful assertions throughout this whole text. And one I want to bring to you the first is, is David's pride. And we see a little bit of this um, in First Chronicles 13, 1 through 4. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, it, it seems good to you, if it seems good to you, and if it's the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and Levites who are, in the, are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. Hmm. I don't know if you pick up on it, but David never inquired if it was the idea of God. He never inquires of God in this. He takes a straw poll of all the people and he says, Hey, you guys want to do this? Doesn't this sound good? We'll relocate the ark. Listen, guys, I bet he had a great sales pitch. Hey, guys, listen, here's the plan. We're going to go down. We're going to get the ark. We haven't. Ark hadn't been in a place of worship for almost 100 years in the center of Israel. So we're going to bring it back to the center of Israel, to Jerusalem, to the capital. It'll make the capital not only the political capital, but the spiritual capital of our country. And we'll all worship God there all together, and God will be glorified. Sign me up. I'm ready to go, aren't you? Well, that's what they did. So they marched down there, and they grabbed it, and they threw it on a cart. Hmm. You know, there's a lot that happened throughout this, but the biggest thing with David was that he totally forgot God in his plan. This thing was doomed from the very beginning. He never inquired of God. And what about poor old Uzzah? Well, I mean, the guy just had cat-like reflexes, right? The ark's stumbling. I mean, he's coming off the ark. He's going to hit the ground. And he just reaches out. Have you ever done that? I cut my hand at an early age just by throwing it out there because a knife was falling off something. I just threw my hand out there. Didn't think about it. What about poor old Uzzah? He dies for that. What in the world? This was not a mistake of the moment. As we see, Uzzah had been taking care of the ark. And he should have known that the Mosaic tradition outlined clearly Instructions of how the ark was to be carried, how it was supposed to be moved. It was not to be touched by human hands. And it was to be carried only by the designated family of priests called the Levites. And they were to take long poles and slide them through the rings on both sides connected to the ark and carry it on their shoulders. Uzzah is not a Levite. Uzzah takes up a Philistine technology. Remember the Philistines when they captured the ark? Where did they do with it? 
they threw it on a cart and hauled it off. So Uzzah takes this new Philistine technology and he goes, oh, well, that's more efficient. Let's throw it on a cart and transport it. That'll be much easier. And it's interesting that the text says a new cart twice. At least they got a new cart. They didn't use an old cart. You know, maybe something with some shiny rims and fancy. Bring some class to the whole proceeding. But the problem with this is that it smacks of pride and irreverence. God has given specific directions. And Uzzah has turned to his own innovative ways. Uzzah is the poster boy for us. For when we uncritically embrace shortcuts to the worship of God and think nothing of his holiness in the revelation that he's given us in his word that there are specific ways to approach a holy God and specific ways not to approach a holy God. And the balance is life and death. Us is put to death for his irreverent pride. Let me say this. Pride kills worship. I imagine at the moment Uzzah dies that the worship service ends. It's pretty much over at that point. You cannot do all things for the glory of God while contending with him for supremacy in your life. And worship is the humble exaltation of God and the humble pushing down of self. That's what it's all about. So if I'm contending with God, worship does not happen. And we see that contending in God, David's reaction to these whole proceedings. Just like any other proud man, when his little agenda gets messed up, he got ticked at God. David had a plan, and God messed it up. And David's mad. Proud men and women always get angry when God asserts his sovereignty in their life because it messes up our plans, our ideas of happiness, and our ideas of worship. And that always comes out in us through these little expressions. But what about? But what about the people, God? What about the worship service that was going on? What about the enthusiasm? Enthusiastic dancing. Don't those bring pleasure to you, God? Why in the world would you kill Uzzah? And God only has one response to this. But what about me? But what about me? When God speaks to Israel's pride and rebellion in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, he res- the resounding message is this. He will not allow himself to be defamed and he will not share his glory with another. David's sinful anger quickly turns to fear and he leaves the ark at the house of Obed-Edom and his worship of God is over at this point. But the story's taking a turn because Obed-Edom's house is not a random place just to stop off and throw the ark off the cart and leave it. Obed-Edom is listed in 1 Chronicles in the family of the Levites. 
And so when the ark arrives there, we're back on God's plan again. And the blessing of God fills Obed-Edom's house. It's an amazing thing. So let's jump back into our story here. Now, the King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread and cake and dates and cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Something has happened in between where we left off David's fear of God and saying the ark can never come to me and leaving it with Obed-Edom to the point where he would go back and have take two at this and try to figure it out. If you look in 1 Corinthians 15, it gives us some insight into that. And it, said that, it says this, After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And David said, No one but the Levites can carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. Sounds like David went back and did his homework a little bit. Then David summoned Zadok and Abathar and all these Levites, and he said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Do you hear that? A mission of guilt. David sees his guilt and repents of it. We did not inquire of God. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the words of the Lord. And David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers and singers as singers and to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. Now, what has happened? We've left the arrogant, prideful, human relocation plan and we've gotten back to the worship of God in God's prescribed way and what happens through it. God blesses it and helps them bring the ark which represents his presence into the capital of the entire nation. With great joy, it says, 
the first, the first take never says that. Never says that they did it with great joy. The second time it says they did it with great rejoicing. And joy was theirs because they were walking in obedience to God's prescribed manner of worship. It's an amazing thing. And David dances like a man who has repented of his sin, tasted of the grace and mercy of God, and is walking in new obedience. And he dances with everything that's in him. For all the world to see. And continuing our story. So David and the elders of Israel, and the commanders in well. David assembled all Israel and Jerusalem to bring up the ark to the place he had prepared for it. And basically, what takes place again here is that David, after sending all of Israel back to their homes and with the fruit of their worship, David turns and goes to his own household. And when he arrives... his wife basically denounces him for dancing in the streets that it was absolutely not worthy of the king and it's interesting in that text because the fact is that Michael was not in the throng of all of Israel dancing before and worshiping before the ark coming in she was up in a room looking down and pointing fingers. And David responds to her in this way, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Once again, we see this final comparison with the house of David and the house of Saul. The line is dead. And what has happened is pride has welled up in Michael's heart, and she is the uninvolved critical observer. She's the one who stepped back and hardened her heart says she despised David. She has hardened her heart and she is pointing fingers at the one who dances before the Lord because of what God has done. It's an amazing set of circumstances. So we see these prideful assertions within the acts of humility and God is raising before us today for us, if we're going to be wholehearted seekers of God, if we're going to live as mature and ministering worshipers of God, humility, yes, pride, no. Pride must die. We see in First Peter, he says this, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God 
opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That quote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, occurs there, it occurs in Proverbs 3, and it occurs in James 4. I don't know about you, but when I see a quote like that, and it, and it happens in three different places in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, you might want to take a note and think deeply about it. God actively, it's action-oriented verb, actively, ongoing, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride kills marriages, pride kills families, pride kills churches. You show me a marriage on the edge, a family in turmoil, a church filled with division, and I will show you the fruit of pride. You see, pride kills marriages and families and churches because pride kills worship. And where there is no rightful worship of God, there will cease to be any humility and grace and forgiveness. For pride positions us in direct opposition to God. And we will not receive the blessings of a heart rightly attuned to God. So the question for us today is this. Not if there is pride in our hearts, but where is it? Pride is the essence of all sin. And it is in our lives. And God has been trying to strip it out of me this week (laughs) through many different vehicles. The scary thing about preaching on texts like this is that God tends to use you as the illustrative point. So what does pride look like in your life? Does it look like David, who forgot God in his plans? Maybe you're too busy being the good, dutiful Christian, and you've forgotten God in your equation. God is a jealous God, and he will not allow that. What are you building with your life? A marriage, a family, a business, a church, a career? In all these ventures... Where's God? Because if he is not central, he will humble us. Just as he did David. All of these areas in our lives are areas of worship to express our humbleness and the supremacy of God. So where is it that you're forgetting God in your plan? Maybe it Your pride looks more like Uzzah's and you ignore God's word for a more efficient way. Maybe you're trying to change yourself in a quicker, faster. You know, a relationship with God and sanctification does not happen on a broadband connection. It's not lickety split. It's not fast. It's the long, arduous process of following God, inquiring of Him, hearing His word, obeying His word, and over a long haul, reaping the blessing from living a life in that vein. It cannot be done at a sprint. And it must be done according to God's plan and not our own new ingenuity. 
So where are you managing God in your life? Where are you seeking more of your innovative ways rather than God's word? And lastly, maybe your pride looks like Michael's pride. Because she despised God's anointed in her heart and became an uninvolved critical observer. She became bitter. So who are you allowing your heart to grow cold to? Is your heart drifting from God, from your spouse, from children, from your small group, from your neighbors, from the church? Are you becoming the uninvolved, critical observer? For all of us who are riddled with pride, there is a promise. And I want you to remember that today. This is the promise of humility that God will look upon the humble and he will give them grace. If you are contesting with God for supremacy in your life, look to the cross where Christ humbled himself and died, shed his blood for the forgiveness of every prideful act you and I have and will have. The question is, are you willing to humble yourself before the cross of Christ. You see, there still is only one way to approach the throne of God. God still only has one prescribed manner, and it comes to us in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you don't approach him in that way, you will die us's death again. It is only through this atoning, sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you and I can enter into a loving, worshipful relationship with a holy God. Let me pray. God, I ask you this morning that you would allow the promises of humility to shape our life the choices that we make, the way in moment by moment we worship you. Slay the pride that ever turns us to contend with you, that we may properly worship worship you God make us humble and allow your gaze to fall upon us so that you will be glorified. So our children and others will one day look back and say, they just kept growing stronger and stronger because God was with them. Lord, we ask you to do this work in our hearts for the fame and the glory of your name. Amen.